0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hello, History friends. Zach Twomley here. Before we give you the latest episode of the Korean War, I wanted to drop Some pretty exciting news on you. If you are subscribed to the newsletter, you will have found this out already. But if you are not, get a load of this. There's this thing called the Sound Education Podcast Conference. It's happening at Harvard University over the 2nd to the 3rd of November, and it's going to be attended by some of the best and brightest minds in podcasting. Not just history podcasting, although Dan Carlin will be there, which is a pretty big deal, but also. Any kind of podcast that teaches you something, hence the name Sound Education. There will be panels of people giving would-be podcasters advice, and there will be talks about different topics that you will certainly find interesting if you're interested in any way in learning about new things, or just podcasting in general. You can get tickets to this by going to the Sound Education website, which I will link in the description of this episode, and the next several episodes to come, because I'm going to it. I am going to go to the Sound Education Conference in Harvard University over the 2nd to the 3rd of November. In fact, because it's my birthday on the 30th of October, my wife and I are going to make a bit of a holiday out of it. So, that brings me to a very important question. Do you want to meet me, and are you in America and never thought you could? That's several questions wrapped up into one, but you get my meaning. I am coming to America. I didn't think this would happen, certainly not in the current circumstances, but we decided to just go for it because it's a great opportunity, and at that stage, I'll have had my application into Cambridge University, not Cambridge, Massachusetts, a different Cambridge, so it's very exciting indeed. I'll hopefully be networking and meeting with a lot of people, including hopefully Dan Carlin. I mean, come on, I'd love to meet the guy. And I could also be meeting you. There's so many people out there that have said, Oh, Zach, next time you come to America, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I never go to America. Sorry. But now I am. So you are now officially on notice. I will share this in all the relevant social media areas. But yes, to those of you who are patrons, to those of you who are just history friends, are you around over the 2nd of the 3rd of November? Or furthermore, maybe you can't get to Harvard, but you're from the Boston area. If you are, by all means, let me know. The only thing I really know about Boston is that it's in Fallout 4 and everything is in Apocalypse, so there won't be any ghouls there and there won't be any nuclear fallout, but there will be lots of history, friends. So I'm really looking forward to this, and if you are too, make sure to email me or to let me know through the relevant media channels that you'd be interested in meeting up either by going to the Sound Education Podcast Conference or by just meeting me up with some other people. If we get enough people together, if I try and find a date and that kind of thing, then during the week that I'm there, perhaps we can all meet up together and have a history friend blowout. That'd be great, and I'm really looking forward to it. So yes, that's my news, basically. It's a pretty big deal, I'm very excited. And, well, kind of time to come back down to Earth with the latest episode of The Korean War. welcome history friends patrons all to the korean war episode 33 last time we examined how mao zedong reacted and adapted to the outbreak of war on korea's peninsula initially taken aback and eager to respond after some consultation with stalin we saw that Mao settled down somewhat and prepared instead to temper and adapt his response in line with his objectives in korea while he hadn't wanted the war to break out in the first place And while he had taken it as an immense insult when the Americans returned to the region in strong support of Chiang Kai-shek, Mao, much like his American and Soviet peers, was determined to make something beneficial come out of the whole wretched situation. Indeed, the potential of the People's Republic of China to intervene and turn the tide was great, and the United States planned for this as the worst-case scenario, sending General MacArthur and some atomic bomb-capable B-29s to Taiwan to send a clear signal Mao took such acts very seriously, as did his peers in the Chinese Communist Party, but intervention at this point was not what he wanted. We learned how Mao wished to intervene at a particular point, that point being when the North Korean People's Army was defeated and the opportunity to reorientate the regime towards Beijing presented itself. That was when the Chinese would attack the UN forces. However, While in the last episode we examined the military considerations and the reasoning behind intervention on a certain stage, we neglected to mention such actual diplomacy which genuinely continued behind the scenes. The British and the Indians, above all, had their own reasons for easing the war tensions between China and the West, and some viewed it as axiomatic that to support a policy of unification under Western direction would cause friction and potentially war with China. From early July 1950 then, several diplomatic initiatives were launched, and Mao remained relatively open to all of them until the date of the 17th of August 1950, when the American ambassador to the United Nations set forth his country's uncompromising aims for a free, unified and independent Korea. After that pronouncement on the 17th of August, there could be no illusions about where American interference in Korea was leading. And Mao reverted, from that point, to a policy of preparation as he sought the right time himself to intervene. In this game of Chinese checkers, hence the name of this episode, where all involved were seeking the best deal for their future partnerships with the People's Republic of China, the Americans by no means held the best interests of their allies at heart. As this war has already taught us, ally, in the context of the Korean War, meant very different things to different states but let's see how the diplomacy and the resulting tensions built up over the summer months as I take you to early July 1950. The song of the week this week. Well, I suppose it's kind of appropriate for me, because it's called Go to Work, You Jerk. It's a song by Benny Bell, the same guy who brought us that gem shaving cream, and it was released in 1948. Enjoy it, guys, and we will be back with episode 33 of The Korean War. If you wanna have lots
2: of cash, if you wanna have filthy flash, go to work your janks, stop hanging around. If you wanna wear fancy clothes, if you wanna see Broadway shows. Go to work, get jerk, stop hanging around. Nobody likes a lazy guy who's always broke. And believe me, it's no joke. It makes you hazy, crazy. If you want to be bright and gay, if you like three meals a day, go to work, get jerk, stop hanging around. Hit the ramp, you tramp. You canary. Go get a job, you slob. You know that the Lord helps those who help themselves. Count the sheep by ones or twelves. Won't bring you money. Sorry. If you wanna have lots of pounds if you wanna know pretty gal. Oh, the white, jerk, stop hanging
1: around! In the first days of July, while the North Korean People's Army stormed over the Han River, Stalin attempted to neuter his allies' offensive capabilities. Mao Zedong professed his willingness to engage in a reactionary policy, and America's Task Force Smith encountered North Korean soldiers for the first time. But, on top of all of this, a further development was also taking place in the UN Security Council. In the first days of July, it was there, in the UN Security Council, that India's ambassador to the UN General Assembly put forward a two-part resolution, calling first for a ceasefire supported by the USSR, the USA and the PRC, and second, for the admission of the PRC into the UN General Assembly, an act which would upset the Americans who didn't yet recognise the PRC, but which would surely please the Soviets, and their goodwill was important for this deal to work. Basically, India wanted everyone to work together for the common good, and to bring about a ceasefire that everyone would be happy with, supported by the major powers. Surely, the Indians assumed, everyone would be happy with a peace treaty that everyone would agree on. And yet, of course, things were not so simple. In a world where the Soviets still boycotted the UN Security Council, and where all the UN's members made their own assumptions about the public versus genuine war aims of the United States, the Indian proposal was unlikely to succeed. Indeed, the United States dallied and awaited the predictable Soviet refusal to approve any prerequisites for peace, which came as expected, so that was handy for the Americans. The Soviets, if a ceasefire was to come, wanted it on their own terms. Interestingly, though, something that the Indian proposal did achieve was to draw Mao Zedong out of the woodwork. In his reactionary state at the beginning of July, you'll remember he took a little while to get settled into things, Mao was willing to approve of anything that might ease the war tensions and let him return to his plans for an invasion of Taiwan, and thus he signalled his acceptance of the ceasefire plan. By so doing, He had demonstrated an important fact of world affairs to America's Soviet expert, George Kennan. Contrary to the assumptions of several American statesmen, communism was not united in the world under Moscow, and here was a clear example of that. If it came down to it, Beijing would pursue a policy, an independent policy, that helped it achieve its own aims. George Kennan had been sent on a tour of South America, while NSC-68 had been drawn up in February and March 1950, and in the past, he had signalled his own scepticism of that document as a guiding principle of American foreign policy. The Soviets, Kennan argued, were not strong, but weak, and they acted out of a sense of weakness, rather than absolute strength. They took opportunities as they came, of course and were forced to act often rashly to exploit them, which made them appear more belligerent than Moscow's general policy line was. If these were Kennan's principles, though, Washington was not content to follow them. It is unknown whether Kennan knew the extent to which the Truman administration had adopted NSC-68 as its policy of containment, but we have seen in the past, such as when Kennan was trotted out to present the American policy towards Korea in late June, that he suspected something was up. However he felt about what the Truman administration was or wasn't doing, Kennan was determined to stick to his guns. In his mind, this revealing difference of opinion between the Soviets and Chinese offered Washington a great opportunity. Kennan believed that America could put the Soviets in an embarrassing position if the policy that was pursued was "...to favour and achieve the admission of the Chinese communists into the United Nations and Security Council," under some understanding which involved Chinese Communist support for a settlement of the Korean affair, along the lines the Indians had suggested. In his own words, though, George Kennan was shouted down at this. In Moscow, while the Soviet rejection of the Indian ceasefire deal made things clearer, Stalin was as usual content to muddy the waters a little bit, with the aim of having it both ways. He cabled Zhou Enlai to let him know that, We agree with the opinion of the Chinese comrades regarding the mediation of India on the question of the entry into the membership of the United Nations, a claim which was diluted somewhat by Stalin's subsequent lack of efforts to bring the Korean War to any kind of end. To have done so, of course, would have violated his own plans to prod China into a conflict with the West, thereby alienating the two sides and making it easier for him to take advantage of the Chinese. Surprise, surprise, Stalin was not looking out for the Chinese comrades. In the meantime, though, it would suffice to blame the West for its intransigence, rather than for Stalin to look in the mirror himself. The Indians, though, to give them their due, did not give up. On the 13th of July, they sent a letter to the Soviets and Americans and changed a great deal of the previous proposal. This time, rather than any actual commitments from the Soviets or Chinese to commit to peace, all that was asked for was that the Sino-Soviet bloc informally explore, as it was put, the opportunities for such a peace. Again eager to have it both ways, Stalin leapt at this watering down of the Indian deal, and he outmaneuvered Dean Acheson by publishing the contents of the letter and signalling his own public willingness to deal in these terms. Since it committed him to nothing at all, Stalin was more than happy to play ball. And this ball playing involved essentially shoving the responsibility for turning down a peace deal onto America's lap. With the letter published and Washington outmaneuvered diplomatically, Stalin knew full well that Acheson would never agree to its contents, not least because it granted the United States no advantages to do so. Publicly, though, Stalin could reason that he was in favor of peace. And for propaganda's sake, the incident was immensely beneficial to him. Acheson, as Stalin had expected, signalled to the Indians that the United States would be forced to pay a substantial price for termination of Soviet aggression in Korea, if they agreed to that peace deal. And Acheson voiced his own opinion that the Indian deal was simply a bad bargain. The Indian proposal would have brought the People's Republic of China into the United Nations, and thus given up one of the West's best bargaining chips against Beijing, in return for a vague commitment that no one had to follow. Yet, as Stalin had hoped, the rejection of the deal wasn't seen as Washington turning down a bad deal. It was viewed both in Washington and Delhi as America saying no to peace, and tensions were heightened there accordingly. Now having seen what the United Nations and its Security Council could do to muddy the waters unintentionally, Stalin took the opportunity to further confuse everyone. In spite of previous pronouncements to the effect that its representative would never take his place until the People's Republic of China replaced the Republic of China in the Security Council, Jacob Malik returned to the Security Council on the 1st of August 1950. From that point, in the words of one historian, Jacob Malik carried on what can best be described as a procedural guerrilla war campaign designed to confuse the issues and immobilise the Security Council in its deliberations. Malik's appearance in the UN Security Council provided Stalin with another opportunity to sow discord and confusion, as one of his first acts was to claim that Moscow had no responsibility for what Pyongyang had done. Claiming the conflict was a Korean civil war... Malik held all criticism up to Syngman Rhee's regime, and he issued no reprimands for Kim Il sung, whom everyone had by then accepted was the true aggressor. What was more, on the basis that he had not been present, Malik reasoned that the previous resolutions put forward on the UN Security Council's agenda on the 25th and 27th of June, condemning North Korea as the aggressor, were invalid to continue the attack. Malik proposed his own resolution on the 4th of August, in which he outlined what he termed a settlement formula, which would bring both sides to the peace table and restore the status quo bellum. Again, it was expected in Moscow that the Americans would oppose this arrangement, because it failed to condemn the northern aggression in any sense, and the Americans, increasingly supported diplomatically by the British at this stage, reasoned that Kim Il-sung's invasion was the true crux of the matter. In light of the new initiative taken on by the Soviets in the UN Security Council, Truman determined to place American policy towards Korea in the public eye. Acting on the basis of Northern aggression and citing the responsibilities of the UN Commission on Korea for the post-war organisation and democratic remodelling of the peninsula, Warren Austin, the man charged with being the American ambassador to the United Nations, made clear for the first time on the 17th of August 1950 that America would push for the unification of Korea under UN auspices, with democratic elections to follow a year after peace had been achieved. This arrangement, of course, left no room for a communist influence or for Kim Il-sung. He was to be shoved out into the cold. But because of the strong moral position that South Korea held, especially in the eyes of the American public, the proposal did not seem totally unreasonable in the West. The British and Indians voiced concerns in the Security Council and General Assembly, but both, in particular the British, were bound to support the Americans in the end. In the People's Republic of China, though, the news that America planned to push for a united, western-leaning Korea was tantamount to disaster. Up to that point, Mao wasn't certain of how far Washington would push. What he was sure of was the grounds on which the Chinese would have to intervene, and the declaration that they would push for total unification and a Western victory in Korea was absolutely one of those grounds. In fact, it was the outcome to be most enthusiastically opposed. Unification under Western auspices would destabilise the peninsula, as the communist elements would maintain their guerrilla campaign so long as Kim lived and the Soviets existed. Furthermore, Rhee's authoritarian democracy had already created its own share of homegrown problems, as strikes and domestic discontent with the aged South Korean president was already widespread before the war broke out. Finally, Mao could never approve of the establishment of a thoroughly westernized pro-American state, quite literally on his doorstep, I mean right next to Manchuria. The complications this presented to Chinese security were far too considerable to ignore, a fact which Washington surely appreciated. During a meeting of the Chinese Politburo on the 4th of August, a fortnight before the American announcement of its Korean policy that is, Mao and his peers had discussed several developments, including the ongoing meetings between Chiang Kai-shek and General MacArthur that were then going on, accompanied by his nuclear B-29s. It was at this meeting that the unspoken policy of Mao Zedong was made clear. On the one hand, the Chinese leader stated that, If the American imperialists won the war, they would become more arrogant and would threaten us. We should not fail to assist the Koreans. We must lend them our hands in the form of sending our military volunteers there. However, Mao concluded this announcement to his peers by noting that The timing could be further decided, but we have to prepare for this. Prepare indeed, since you'll recall from the last episode that Mao had seen to it that over a quarter of a million Chinese were sitting on the Korean-Chinese border by late July 1950. Mao's concerns over timing reflect several important points about his true policy. With the men on hand to absolutely crush the United States in the Pusan perimeter, at this point in early August, Mao's hesitation to act now can be explained by his desire to both guarantee Soviet air support and to build up a greater pool of manpower in the region. In addition though, it is worth considering that Mao's kicking of the Korean can down the road reflected the fact that he did not wish to intervene until it was clear which way the wind was blowing. A fortnight later though, when the United States signalled their commitment to finish the war in Pyongyang and effectively eliminate the Democratic People's Republic of Korea from the map, Mao's patience was vindicated. He now knew that American policy would necessitate his military intervention after all, whereas before, he couldn't have been quite sure to have intervened in early August, as Stalin repeatedly urged, would have brought a victory to the Soviet satellite of North Korea. Wait until that satellite has been pushed into desperation, with its Soviet ally fleeing that sinking ship, and Kim Il-sung would welcome Beijing with open arms, and he would sacrifice his own freedom of movement to ensure his regime's survival. Indeed, while this was exactly what happened once the Chinese intervened and took formal control of North Korea's war effort in late November 1950, Mao recognised that in the interim, diplomatic opportunities did exist to get what he wanted. Unlike Stalin, Mao's policy towards Korea was one of cynical opportunism that only went so far. If a costly war in Korea could be avoided... If the People's Republic of China could gain substantial diplomatic boosts in the UN Security Council, then Mao had to consider these opportunities, even if he was in two minds about accepting them. At best, diplomatic engagement with the United States would pave the way for mutually beneficial peace treaties. At worst, it would give Mao more time to prepare his forces, which were camped eagerly on the Korean border. Although in the end he would choose war then, for the moment from the time Warren Austin's speech elaborated America's Korean policy, Mao sought to float some diplomatic trial balloons. In the course of such floating, Mao was defined, even if he never discovered the true reasons behind it, that the Americans were unwilling to treat and the Soviets were content to confuse everything that the Chinese proposed. When Zhou Enlai cabled the United Nations on the 20th of August to voice his concerns about the declared American policy, the People's Republic of China had taken a significant step towards involving themselves in the Korean question. Zhou Enlai declared that the Korean conflict must and can be settled peacefully, and he demanded that once the Korean question was discussed in the Security Council, the People's Republic of China should be consulted. Zhou Enlai, remember, he was the Chinese Foreign Secretary at this point, was aware of diplomatic protocol, so he did not demand everything, and he refrained from mentioning that Beijing was entitled to have a seat at the Security Council and replace Taiwan. In response to this note, Washington, well, they offered nothing. It was against the aims of the Truman administration to exploit any differences between Moscow and Beijing, after all, since opposing that bloc together granted them the best chances of achieving their swollen defence budget. Interestingly, it was Moscow that broke the silence and in the process confused the Chinese overture. On the 22nd of August, two days after Zhou Enlai's cable had been received, Jacob Malik stood before the UN Security Council and he declared that "...any continuation of the Korean War will invariably lead to a widening of the conflict with consequences." the responsibility for which will lie with the Americans. This declaration, coming only two days after Zhou Enlai's overture, suggested that the Soviets and Chinese were in cahoots after all, and that they had coordinated their efforts to put pressure on the Allies to make a peace. That Chinese attempts to probe for peace were merely window dressing for the Sino-Soviet bloc's aim of blaming Washington for everything. Because of this move by Jacob Malik, which of course was really a move by Stalin, Zhou Enlai's proposal was lost in the new sea of hostility which threatened to subsume Chinese diplomacy, but the Chinese foreign secretary wouldn't be so easily deterred. Using the tried and tested connection of the Indians, Zhou Enlai communicated a new trial balloon which the Indians discussed. The Indian ambassador to Beijing, who had met with Enlai, ...wrote the following to the Indian Foreign Minister on the 24th of August, saying... It might be possible to persuade Beijing not to press the issue of Taiwan... ...if assurances could be obtained from the United States on one of the following alternatives. A. After Korean situation was eased, United States would withdraw protection from Republic of China remnants in Taiwan... ...or B. If United Nations would accept Beijing as sole representative of China or c. if United Kingdom, Indian and other powers which had recognised Beijing could give assurances that they would use their influence to see that the United States did not aim at keeping Republic of China remnants in Taiwan permanently under US protection. The set of requests were thus a trade-off. Chinese inaction in Korea and Taiwan for the moment in exchange for a US commitment, or a similar such commitment from its allies, to vacate Taiwan once the Korean situation all blew over. The Indian Foreign Minister then communicated another portion of his Beijing ambassador's musings, wherein the ambassador stated that there was No reason to think that China had any immediate intention to attack Taiwan. Apart from all other considerations, she feels that her very substantial gains may themselves be jeopardised if a new world war now intervenes and confuses the issue. Also, she realises that, while she has great powers of resistance, she cannot carry on a war against America. Chinese leaders are therefore determined to avoid a war unless they are forced into it by a direct threat to their authority on the mainland. The contents of these communications were forwarded by the Indian Foreign Minister to America's ambassador to India, and then on to Dean Acheson, through this back channel the United States could see for itself what the Chinese genuinely wanted, even if it was far from clear that they would get it. Publicly, of course, Mao took a different approach, and he encouraged Zhou Enlai to engage in some rhetorical acrobatics, wherein, among other criticisms of American policy, Zhou Enlai insisted that Beijing was determined to liberate from the tentacles of the US aggressors Taiwan and all other territories belonging to China, while he also urged the UN Security Council to condemn the U.S. government for its criminal act in the armed invasion of the territory of China, and to take immediate measures to bring about the complete withdrawal of all the U.S. armed forces from Taiwan. So, the real question is, what are we supposed to make of the two Chinese communications in the public and private spheres? Thanks to the use of both channels to get their points across, Mao was able to communicate the importance of Taiwan to the People's Republic of China, and also to signal his willingness to treat with Washington over the issue. Because he had communicated that latter point in private, the US would know of Chinese moderation, while in public, Beijing would be made to not look weak. Sometimes the traditional considerations of foreign policy, those obsessed with reputation and self-image, re-entered the equation amidst all the trickery. That's it, national honour is back and apparently here to stay. As we know from the last episode, on the 12th of August, Mao had called off plans for an invasion of Taiwan, but Washington did not necessarily have to know this. Indeed, what Washington feared, as we know, was not actually an invasion of Taiwan, but China's inopportune involvement in Korea before the Pusan defences and sufficient manpower could be prepared. Any private or public communications were drowned out by the desire of the Truman administration to pursue its rearmament and containment policy aims, and once the United States felt secure enough in its position in Korea to prod the Chinese, they would almost certainly go their own way. In the last week of August, the United States was not yet totally confident enough to openly oppose the Chinese and close the door on any opportunities for a settlement. While some defiant proposals had been made, such as that made on the 17th of August, which cleared up where America actually stood on the Korean aims, Washington remained willing to strike a balance between offering the carrot to Beijing and doing their own thing in the meantime. In short, the official, unofficial strategy of the Truman administration, until General MacArthur launched his Inchon landings in the middle of September, was to stall for time. In line with this, the US seized upon the public pronouncements of Zhou lai and effectively ignored the private offers. Truman took the opportunity to recommend the Taiwan question to the United Nations, an act which would, of course, draw the ire of the People's Republic of China, because Mao would say it was none of the UN's business, but it would also surely delay the outcome. This was the carrot aspect of the deal, because it signalled that Washington was listening to Mao's concerns, even if the Americans had no intention of instantly easing these concerns. Then Truman followed up with a set of pronouncements delivered to the UN Secretary-General on the 25th of August, wherein the American President noted that The United States has not encroached on the territory of China, nor has the United States taken aggressive action against China. The action taken on the 27th of June to neutralise the Taiwan Straits, Truman claimed, was an impartial neutralising action addressed both to the forces on Taiwan and to those on the mainland. It was designed to keep the peace in Asia and was therefore, in Truman's words, in full accord with the spirit of the Charter of the United Nations. The United States, stressed Truman, had absolutely no designs on Taiwan. Then Truman followed this by establishing the legal basis of American policy towards Taiwan, saying The actual status of the island is that it is territory taken from Japan by the victory of the Allied forces in the Pacific. Like other such territories, its legal status cannot be fixed until there is international action to determine its future. The Chinese government was asked by the Allies to take the surrender of the Japanese forces on the island. That is the reason the Chinese are there now. Establishing the legal ground as far as was possible at least, Truman continued by noting that the United States would welcome UN consideration of the case of Taiwan. We would approve a full UN investigation, here or on the spot. We believe that UN consideration would contribute to a peaceful rather than a forceful solution of that problem. By holding out the carrot of UN deliberation on Taiwan, Truman was both delaying and mildly appeasing Mao Zedong. So long as the United States signalled a willingness to talk about the issue, Mao couldn't accuse the Americans of doing otherwise. Notwithstanding the shaky legal ground that America was on in its usage of Taiwan, the reasoning that the place was under protection until the UN could sort it out and heal the rift between the Chinese and Japanese was enough for the moment. Critical to this issue, though, was what Truman said next. We do not believe that the Security Council need be or will be diverted from its consideration of the aggression against the Republic of Korea. There was a breach of the peace in Korea. If the Security Council wishes to study the question of Taiwan, we shall support and assist that study. Meanwhile, the President of the Security Council should discharge the duties of his office and get on with the item on the agenda, which is the complaint of aggression against the Republic of Korea. The complaint of aggression had been set out on the 25th and 27th of June, and by drawing attention back to Korea, Truman signalled that no settlement on Taiwan would be reached until after the Korean situation itself was solved. Since the Americans had already made clear their intentions to unify Korea under UN auspices, what Truman was essentially asking Mao to do was sit back and wait while America unified Korea alongside its UN allies, And once this was done as a kind of reward for sitting back, Taiwan would be submitted to the United Nations for consideration. Once peace was accomplished, in Truman's words, even the most complex political questions would be susceptible of solution. Having privately settled on the amphibious landing at Incheon on the 9th of August and setting out American policy towards Korea on the 17th of August, Truman was asking a lot of Mao if he wanted him to simply stand aside. Yet, we must bear in mind that Truman's message wouldn't only be communicated to Mao, it would also be disseminated among the other members of the UN Security Council and General Assembly, of course, including Washington's allies. Thus, even if the justification for American action in Taiwan and Korea rubbed Mao the wrong way, so long as America could be seen to talk to Mao and present justification to its allies, no matter how weak these justifications were, the pressure upon the Truman administration to explain itself would not be so severe. Indeed, among its allies, this explanation was to prove sufficient to several months, largely because the last week of August was dominated by the preparations undertaken to launch the amphibious landings at Inchon, an end goal which Washington's allies well appreciated as August turned to September 1950. Interestingly then, for the two weeks before the landings at Incheon on the 15th of September, Truman sought to deter Mao from intervening, as soon as the landings had taken place, though, and shattered the capabilities of the North Korean People's Army to effectively continue the war within only a few days, Truman changed tack and attempted to compel Mao to intervene after all. From late September, as we'll see in later episodes, American policy switched from a cautious traversal of Mao Zedong's sensibilities to a straight-up campaign of lobbing as many insults and disconcerting pieces of news towards Beijing as humanly possible. This was of course in line with NSC 68, and it conformed to the Truman administration's aim to gain the lengthy war in Korea that it needed for its budgetary increases. I know it sounds like I'm beating a dead horse, but this is genuinely why, this is, this is why I believe at least, that Truman acted the way he did. To the American public, what followed seemed like the United States accepting the moral responsibility of its station and saving South Korea before ridding the peninsula of the belligerent communist regime. To her allies though, America's newfound enthusiasm for poking the Sino-Soviet bear proved as confusing as it did worrying. Interestingly enough to Mao Zedong, the target of this contradictory policy through the months of July, August and September America's strategy was plain. The worst-kept secret of an amphibious landing, most likely at Inchon, was duly expected, and when this happened, Mao knew that he would have to intervene in the name of the Chinese goal to reorientate Kim Il-sung's regime towards Beijing, and of course, push the Western alliance back across the 38th parallel. By the last week of August 1950, it was clear to Mao that America's defensive position on the peninsula and those of her allies had dramatically improved as the Pusan perimeter became a hub of activity. Washington and her allies were plainly preparing for the counter-attack at North Korea that had long been expected and it was thus highly unlikely that any diplomatic initiatives would deter her from acting or move her to compromise. Beijing's diplomatic trial balloons failed to launch but They had provided the PRC with a chance to further reinforce the position of the enthusiastic divisions gathering on the Korean-Chinese border. At least, Mao liked to think that they had bought him some time, but in reality, the Americans never would have acted any other way. On the 23rd of August, the very day that MacArthur was making the case for the Incheon landings, Mao Zedong decided to remain aloof from the Korean War. He would not intercept the UN landings at Incheon and he would not involve himself at all in the conflict in the sensitive month of September while the landings were planned, launched and consolidated. The reason for this stems from Mao's true objectives for Korea. Helping Stalin or Kim restore the status quo of a Soviet satellite was of no interest to him. Only by bringing Kim over to his side and restoring North Korea under Chinese auspices with the People's Republic of China have the security it needed. Since Washington was unaware of this unwillingness on Mao's part to intervene, fierce debate proceeded apace regarding MacArthur's insistence for an Inchon landing. Incheon, it was believed, was simply too perfect a spot, too obvious an objective, and too specific in its title and operations requirements. If the Soviets or Chinese wanted to, with some knowledge of the region, they could predict up to the day where and when the UN forces would land. For this reason, Incheon was opposed as a trap, a landing far too good to be true. Yet, it was true, and Incheon would represent MacArthur's crowning glory. Largely because neither the Soviets nor the Chinese had any interest in protecting their ally in North Korea. Much like the United States... Both Moscow and Beijing were far more interested in a war of manipulation than a war to save their communist brethren in Pyongyang. On the 27th of August, Mao ordered that the forces of Manchuria be tripled to 700,000 men, and said that no instructions regarding the deployment of these forces would be made until the end of September, by which point the new forces would be ready for combat, and the United Nations Army would have established their beachhead at Incheon. While Mao built up his troops in anticipation for the counterattack further down the line, he must have been puzzled by the absence of notes from Stalin to intervene. Since August, these urgings had largely dried up, and Stalin had refrained from requesting any immediate Chinese action in support of North Korea. The question of why Stalin stopped urging Mao to get involved after August sheds further light on the cynical end goal of the Soviet leader. Since North Korean defeat and Chinese intervention was what he desired, he didn't urge Mao to become involved at an opportune moment when Chinese volunteers could save Kim's regime. August was a sensitive month for American preparations, as were the first two weeks of September, and Stalin likely believed that if Mao was pushed enough, he would act in Kim's name, thereby saving Pyongyang from the kind of conflict that Stalin desired. A Chinese intervention could well alienate the West from the Chinese in August and early September. However, this alienation would be guaranteed if, at the apex of their success, the People's Republic of China intervened an enthusiastic force to throw back the UN forces just before they crossed the finish line in triumph. The image of Mao's legions throwing back the forces of democracy at the last moment would be vividly and dramatically effective, and Stalin's patience in this regard would certainly be rewarded, as Mao did, willingly as it turned out, intervene just as MacArthur was engaging in the final push for total victory in late November. However, in August and September, such outcomes were far off. To Kim Il-sung, whose promised military triumph in Korea had clearly gone up in smoke, the next few weeks were to be the most trying time of his life. In addition, it was during this difficult time in Kim's life that his allies were further from him than ever before. In pursuit of their separate policy aims, neither Stalin nor Mao Zedong wished to intervene in the carefully crafted set of circumstances that had been incubating for the last few months. While he couldn't have known it, the key ingredient in the success of his allies' policies was his misfortune. Next time, we'll examine what happened when the axe fell at last and General MacArthur's landings at Incheon were deployed to their full effect. I hope you'll join me then, history friends, but until then, I've been Zach, and you've been listening to the Korean War episode 33. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon.